what you want more than anything is you want to meet people with different experiences and I've always sort of found you would see things that you would not automatically have come across. Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. I'm Scott Chaloner, and once again, I'll be exploring a new perspective on leadership, joined each week by a different CEO, CFO, director, president, government minister, and who knows, maybe even one day the Prime Minister's most senior advisor, if I can catch him before he sets off for County Durham, that is. The aim here is to discover who these people are, the people who get up each morning and make this country work. We discuss everything from innovation to upskilling the next generation and, of course, the success that makes it all worthwhile in the end. We also get their take on the current economic and political landscape here in the UK. I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Clive Ormerod, Managing Director of OMS, a training and consultancy firm based in Leicester. By way of support, guidance and advice, OMS improves business performance and helps them to remain compliant, backed by 20 years of experience in advising and training companies of all kinds across the UK. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, I present Clive Ormerod. Good morning, Clive. A very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for joining us on the programme today. Uh, good morning. And uh, yeah, it's, it's good to be, be on the programme. Uh, especially with the the interesting times that we're we're currently in. Absolutely. Um, it is um, actually quite a uh, rare, nice day uh, for it. Um, for the benefit of those listening, we are recording on uh, the 27th of May 2020, so a good two months into the COVID-19 lockdown, of course, and the weather is fortunately picking up um, with it as well. Now, Clive, you're a training and consultancy firm over in Leicester with a workforce of over 40 people, including associates um, alongside you. Tell me, with the COVID-19 outbreak, how have you actually found things in the last uh, couple of months? Because I can imagine it's posed a tremendous challenge for OMS in that respect. Yes, it's been extremely uh, challenging. I mean, it's uh, unprecedented in, in recent times and uh, it's impacting on not just ourselves, but uh, our client base uh, as well. And as you said, we've got a business which encompasses uh, training uh, and consultancy. And what we've found are, are two completely different kind of uh, effects on the business. The training side, uh, with the majority of what we are doing, is face-to-face training. Uh, and that's really been uh, decimated. Um, so uh, where we had uh, potentially five courses each day uh, running, uh, that has dropped down to uh, virtually uh, nothing. We've um, had to adapt um, how we've, we've worked and we've come up with uh, virtual training off- offerings and spoken to uh, the awarding bodies and got approval so we're able to deliver them uh, using Zoom, uh, which we have had experience in the past uh, with um, delivering uh, training to international companies. So some of our existing client base, such as BT, Inchgate Shipping and, and Ploughpay. Um, so yeah, it's been a, it's been a challenging challenging market, um, and we are doing some uh, training, but very very little. On the consultancy side, uh, we deal with a lot of essential worker uh, companies, mm. and we're finding that they're uh, extremely busy. Uh, so we look after 
um, companies who are in the utility sector, uh, the drainage um, and cleaning. Uh, and they've been up to many risk assessments in relation to uh, working and uh, being COVID secure. Um, so, yeah, we've been quite quite busy looking after them. So, yeah, two completely contrasting uh, sides of the business. Uh, and we're in that lucky situation that we have had the um, ability on the consultancy side to bring in, in revenue, whereas on the training side it has been uh, dramatically reduced and we've uh, finished up uh, furloughing uh, the bulk of the, the staff on the training side. It certainly seems to be the case that um, the training side has been quite severely hampered um, and in comparison, quite understandably so, the consultancy side has um, really blossomed during this period, working with a lot of, um, of course, critical businesses. Um, what do you think, Clive, the long-term effect of this will be on your industry? Because even when we begin to see things opening up again, there's still going to be a little bit of that hesitation for face-to-face contact, isn't there? And there will be, of course, a bit more time needed for things to really revert to normal definitely um, I think one of the things that we found is because we have a, a training centre which has got practical training in uh, and classroom training we found that the classroom side uh, to be honest unless you're doing virtual training it is just a no-no uh, and I can't foresee that changing until into July or onwards uh, with the practical training, we do uh, some essential training for, say, operational mobile elevation platforms for um, working on construction sites and also aluminium towers for, for construction sites. Now, we have been doing training on, on those um, and getting that, or started to do it again, and, and getting that ready uh, was a massive challenge. And one of the things, even though we've been dealing with it, um, with our clients, when we actually started looking at it ourselves, we found that it was extremely challenging. Um, so we did walkthroughs on uh, making sure that we could have social distancing, making sure that all contact areas were reduced to as little as possible. For example, within the building, we've got fire doors on corridors, uh, things like that. We've now actually put them so that they're magnetically held linked to the fire alarm so that in effect people are not opening and closing doors um, if the fire alarm goes off they will automatically close but it's, it's things like that it's in the practical uh, training area we've had to deep clean it right the way through which I think took about a week uh, but you can't really say to anybody you know we're, we're making sure that we're, we're kind of cleaning all surfaces if there's dust uh, and other things in place so yeah, it, it, once you start looking at it, it becomes very challenging. We've got sanitation, uh, uh, sanitization points at each uh, entrance so that when people come in, they can sanitize uh, their hands. We've got face masks uh, for moving around the, the building so that uh, it protects them. Uh, and we've reduced the classroom sizes to a classroom that might hold 20 uh, candidates comfortably. Now you're struggling to get any more than 10 in with the, the two-metre uh, distancing because uh, obviously in the classrooms you don't want people to have to wear masks. They want to be in a bit more relaxed uh, environment. And also some of the interaction um, is also going to be reduced. So, yeah, we've, we've kind of taken the position that we will do the essential training, so the IPATH training, which is the 
mobile elevation uh, work platform for a course. The maximum you could fit on that is four. Um, so the face-to-face training isn't that challenging uh, on there. And also with the PASMA, which is the aluminium powers, then normally we can fit up to 12 and we've cut it down to eight. Um, and we're limiting it to one course per day, so we're not getting a mass of uh, people in, in our premises at the same time. We've also implemented a one-way system um, so that people are not bumping into one another. Uh, but when you actually start going through and looking at touch points and coffee facilities and all those, it, it is extremely challenging. So, you know, we feel now that we've uh, comfortably managed it and we're quite confident about offering um, the essential um, practical training for, for the IPAF and the um, PASMA. But on the face-to-face, for the time being, we're sticking with the um, virtual training using Zoom, which we've had some really good feedback on from our trainers and we've worked really hard to try and make sure it's an interactive experience. So yes, it's it is it's been a challenging time. Hmm. Certainly seems like there's been a great deal of innovative work going on behind the scenes of course delivering training by zoom just to keep things ticking over but also as well there's been a lot of work going on to make the premises covid secure and that's even though there's been a lot of publicity over a lack of clarity around government guidelines for what covid secure actually means for certain premises if we think about that just for a moment sir clive have you been encouraged by the government's overall response to this crisis because although there has been some perhaps issues over um, clarity regarding safety guidelines um, in some quarters. They have also been very proactive in safeguarding business with small business loans, with the job retention scheme on the other hand, for example. Yes, I mean, uh, from my perspective, it's very easy for people to actually look at the government and criticise and say they could have done this better or that better. Um, but that's due to things kind of unfolding and, and looking back retrospectively is a very accurate science. I feel that um, with it being unprecedented as it is, most of the uh, countries were looking at flu pandemics uh, and are geared up towards flu pandemics rather than the, the COVID-19. So it's one of those situations that as they go through, it's a learning curve. The good point from ours is a furlough scheme, which I think has been the lifeline to many com- companies. And without that, they would have uh, gone under. Um, and also the bounce back loan. Um, so they uh, up to £50,000 to um, allow companies to have cash flow. Because one of the problems that we've uh, encountered as well is many of our existing clients um, actually furlough most of the staff. So the uh, amount uh, we have outstanding is much greater because people haven't been us. I think that is, is the way it's um, gone uh, through speaking to, to other companies as well. Um, and I think the challenge has been that... Um, People have not necessarily been linked into the uh, IT side, so remote working has been quite a challenge. Uh, what we've tended to do with the government guidance is we're kind of plugged into all the updates and we're also linked into trade associations, so the construction industry who've been giving uh, guidance and we've been working with them. Um, so I think on um, a lot of the guidance, it's been changing 
uh, weekly. So we've been updating what we've been doing in light of new developments, uh, working with trade associations to understand how they're uh, tackling things and then feeding that out to ourselves and putting things in place and also feeding it out to um, our, our clients. Uh, I mean, we, with the consultancy side and also the training side, we've been very much linked into the IT side. So we've had uh, laptops for everybody right across the business um, and uh, all staff and remote work because we've worked quite heavily on trying to use video conferencing previously wherever we could to serve traveling up and down the country uh, and serve the environment uh, as well. Uh, and it's surprising how much uh, time is wasted through through traveling time uh, and traveling costs as well. Um, so we've tried to, to actually set our business up that, which has worked in our favor during the, the, the COVID-19 uh, outbreak. Um, so, yeah, the government has been giving advice and that has been changing as um, the science catches up uh, with it. But, yeah, I think it's been it's been really helpful um, the way things can move forward. Of course, and businesses having to be adaptable and be flexible in order to make sure that it's ready for those changing guidelines and changing circumstances. And that's, of course, where the challenge comes in. Now, um, Clive, it's been quite a few months since OMS appeared in the Parliamentary Review, an indispensable guide to uh, best practice. And in your article, for those listeners tuning in who haven't read it, you mentioned that many companies prior to this COVID-19 pandemic were understandably lacking in efficiencies. And that's not down to incompetence but rather because many business leaders are caught up in the furore of day-to-day business demands and it's therefore difficult for firms to have that time to sometimes pause and reflect on how they can improve. And that's where yourselves, of course, come into the equation at OMS. Now, the fact that firms are really lacking in efficiencies in some cases, that's really coming to the fore at the moment, isn't it? Because it's those firms that are really struggling in the wake of this pandemic. But also there is now that time to essentially pause and reflect and businesses having to adapt and really having to improve. It's really forced that out of uh, the, uh, the whole business um, in, um, case, hasn't it? Uh, yes. I mean, it, it's if you start looking around at, at what's happened, I mean, there's been a, uh, a massive loss of life, which is uh, very, very sad. Um, and there's also been a, a massive financial impact on, on businesses. One of the things uh, that it has highlighted is how the global supply chain um, when you get a situation like, like this, falls apart. So we have um, customers um, who are working in the construction industry, uh, electricians, and they've run out of cable because the supply chain's broken down because a lot of that was produced in uh, China. And, and because of the breakout in China, supply started drying up before it actually hit the UK um, and people started being uh, into lockdown. Um, so yes, it, it's basically um, highlighted a lot of weakness, uh, weaknesses in in organisation. I think we're in this sad situation that many of the weaker companies may not survive um, through this, and I think the problem's going to occur, um, and, and it's going to bite when people start bringing uh, staff out of furlough, and you've got the um, staff costs without the, the necessary the revenue coming in. And it's where companies need to, to look at themselves and innovate and adapt how they actually work and their offering uh, to meet the requirements of, of, of the new world. 
or the new normal as everyone is, is actually calling it. Um, so it, it's really trying to actually um, pause for thought, actually look at what people are doing, look at what um, the, the barriers are in place for, from their current offering uh, and adapt um, their, their offering to suit uh, the new world. And it, it's one of the things, as I say, that we've done is we've looked at the, the Zoom uh, side uh, and we've uh, tailored our approach uh, around that. Uh, we've limited the, the numbers on the training so that we're not actually um, finishing up with a, a seminar rather than a, a training session. And I think companies have got to actually now start looking at those um, activities. And this is where an external consultancy helps because we go into an organisation with a fresh pair of eyes uh, and we look at it um, anew, whereas uh, the owners have been involved in that business for many, many years. Uh, and sometimes what they've done has been very, very successful, but the, the world changes uh, and they haven't adapted uh, what they're doing um, to streamline it, to chase costs out of the business. And also, you've got to look very carefully at customer satisfaction and make sure that whatever you're doing, you're constantly uh, improving. Um, and it's having a, a separate pair of eyes looking at that and actually discussing and, and challenging customers as well, um, which they might find um, difficult, but it, it, it's how you actually progress and move things forward. I mean, there are um, you know instances where we've uh, been involved with, with other companies and uh, one business uh, that we're dealing with um We've been working with for, for a little bit of time and we've done training sessions and upskilling their, their workforce. But one of the things that we found is is they weren't achieving their, their business plan. And when we looked at it more uh, closely, um, the issue was really that staff didn't have the, the level of, of competence that they should have and a lot of the training was piecemeal. So we worked with them to identify the competencies that were required for the staff and we identified on one particular division, there were seven uh, competencies that were required that went across the, the business. And we developed a full competency assessment by identifying what good would look like and what's the ideal technician uh, skill sets and what tools he have in his toolbox. So we went through and, and developed a competency assessment program based on that. And the output from that then fed into their uh, training uh, needs uh, to upskill their staff. Um, so we went through that and assessed all their, their staff and found that there was quite uh, a number of, of deficiencies. We focused the training uh, uh, specifically to those skill sets and those competencies uh, and upskilled the, uh, the workforce. We then actually used that uh, competency set for recruitment, so they had a, a day assessment where new recruits would come in uh, prior to being selected, and they would then go through um, some practical tests um, for fault finding, um, and they would go through written papers just to establish the individual skill set. And from that, they would then be selected or not. And one of the things that was initially found is there was a very high rejection rate and the company was concerned. Um, but as we said, as you start 
um, looking at the costs. Yes, you've got the cost of the initial recruitment, advertising. But normally, they would actually take that person on. And then three to six months later, they would find that they weren't actually up to what they wanted and might finish up having to let them go. So, in effect, it saved that time. It also reduced the cost of people hitting the ground running. Uh, they've now found that by doing that, uh, since introduction, they've managed to hit their business plan and the division's grown by 30% and exceeded its business plan. Uh, and it's taken on a lot more work um, than, it, than it previously was. So it's really trying to look at things afresh. Uh, that company never... Um, really was focusing on the competency framework or the competency of its staff. Um, and it really, sometimes you've got to go back down to the root cause of these things, which might not manifest itself in uh, in the way you think it would do. Um, so it, it's really, I mean, we did another program for an international uh, shipping company um, who was uh, struggling a little bit with the... Um, um, management systems, so the environmental and the health and safety, and they wanted the, the quality upgrading. And they were they had 120 offices in the UK, North and South America, and Japan. Um, and we sat down with them and started to understand their their business and look at the challenges that they faced on an international um, footing. Um, and then actually used their head office as the, the model, which was based in the UK, and started um, producing uh, the systems and controls from there. Um, and linked in with that, we then started looking at, okay, we've, we've got the systems, how were they going to be managed? And we found that there was also um, quite a bit of training that was required, and also leadership and management training for their management team because they'd taken or bought out a few companies and amalgamated them, and there were skill set uh, shortages. So it was really upskilling their managers uh, and giving them the tools to actually lead and manage um, in their division. And then rolling out that, that training program. So when we actually started implementing in the, the uh, 120 offices across the Americas and, and Japan, then in the planning side, we looked at not just the developing and implementing the systems uh, in their offices, but also rolling out the training to the staff so that people understood the systems, understood why they were doing them, uh, and that's the maximum uh, moving forward. Um, and we also then looked at uh, how can you audit and make sure that these things are kept in place in a very cost-effective manner. So we used, we looked at remote auditing, uh, which um, was very, very cost-effective because the company was spending three to four million pounds a year on, on auditing uh, all the officers globally. So we helped to reduce those costs by, also, and also increasing uh, the robustness um, by using electronic means. And overall, the business improved its performance. And one of the things that was the, the kind of consolidated it was the feedback from their clients um, was much much better, and it consolidated uh, their position with with their their client base. So different examples, but it's something that when you start looking at, at businesses, 
is trying to not just give a one-size-fits-all, but actually understanding the challenges that that business faces and how you can actually help them um, overcome those challenges. Um, and it's not just the cost of putting the system in or, or, or what you've done, it's how, how much it costs to maintain it ongoing. And if you have inefficient systems, then um, they're going to cost you year on year, and it's trying to actually chase those out of the business. So, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting market, I, I find. And um, sometimes we come away scratching our heads, but it, it's something that um, we find that uh, we, we actually uh, can, can add value to, to a customer's uh, business by doing this. And I can certainly see why, uh, Cliver, for sure. And there will be demand for those sorts of uh, services going forward, because as we do begin to emerge from this uh, COVID-19 pandemic, there'll be a lot of need for consultancy uh, services going forward. And even prior, um, you mentioned again in that uh, Parliamentary Review Best Practice article that the uh, consultancy services side of the business had had a growth in demand of around 30% just from businesses wanting help with changes in laws and regulations as well. So the demand is certainly going to be there going forward. Now, um, the purpose of this podcast as well, um, Clive, is to discuss the topic of leadership and really bring that into focus. So if we think about leadership from the business perspective, what do you think a leader ought to be? What qualities do you think they should have? Yeah, I think um, leadership over the years has, has, has actually changed. And I think now uh, a good leader um, actually... Um, and it engages their team and, and it's about bringing uh, your team along and it's utilising the diversity of that team uh, to to actually help um, the business to grow so I think you know you go back many years ago and it was uh, best described as, as, as leaders who were very dictatorial autocratic um, but I think those days have gone uh, I think society has, has changed and especially with the new generations to do, are coming in, uh, they need to be motivated um, to actually um, get involved in the business and, and need to feel a lot more value. So mm. uh, my opinion is you need to spend you know, 80% of your time working with your people, um, making sure that you're upskilling them, giving them the necessary tools to do the job, supporting them, letting them make mistakes. Um, mistakes are part of the learning process. Um, and, you know, it, it's something where um, what I would say is personal development with your team is allowing them to um, move forward and develop the skill sets, let them make the mistakes, but stay a safe distance away. If you need to assist them, uh, you can do. And it's also exposing them to, to new challenges. So what I would say a leader's about is, is looking at the strategy, uh, but also engaging uh, your people and bringing them on side. Um, and also a facilitator. So you are actually allowing um, to bring out the best of your team uh, and to resolve conflicts and to... Uh, make it so that people enjoy coming to work. If people enjoy coming to work, then they're actually going to uh, work hard and develop um, the business. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's really 
of uh, a facilitator who, who sets directions and engages uh, the workforce. Mm, absolutely it's so important to take people with you and show that you do of course uh, consider um, their interests and those leaders certainly that are showing that they do that will be reaping the benefits at the moment because it will be their teams that are really putting in the um, the legwork um, in keeping things ticking over during the COVID-19 pandemic and really uh, getting things uh, done without complaint for sure and also as you say encouraging people to have the confidence to go beyond their comfort zone and be willing to make mistakes as well and embrace that as a learning opportunity because I think that we can't really hope to develop into effective leaders without that and even in leadership roles it's still very much a learning process we're not going to get everything right are we? No I think you need to allow uh, people to develop their own uh, style as well Um, so if you're constantly uh, macro managing them then in effect they will stand back um, and not necessarily engage whereas if you allow them to uh, run with projects and as you say get out of their comfort zone yeah they might be struggling but that is when they start learning if they're outside the comfort zone uh, and also give them the permission to make mistakes um, it, it's one of those things that they'll beat themselves up enough if they make a mistake without you beating them up as well so it's really giving them support and if they do make a mistake turn around and actually discussing with it but not uh, criticising it. There's very few people who, who come in in the morning and, uh, and say, how can I make a mistake today? They do the best, and sometimes the decision-making process isn't right, but then you've got to support, support them through uh, so that they do make the, the right decisions. Mm, I think that's absolutely uh, right, uh, Clive. And uh, if we think about, of course, different styles of leadership and focus on your style for a moment. What would you say have been some of the major influences on that as you've developed throughout your life and your career? I think that uh, I was in the construction industry on uh, mechanical uh, contracting, on pipe work and welding and things like that. And it was a very exact exacting industry, very contractual, um, very hard uh, and from that, it was an industry that if you actually um, didn't form well, it chewed you up and spat you out. And I saw um, the ways of how not to manage people um, within the industry. And from that, I learned massive lessons on how not to do things. Um, and it's something that uh, what I try to do with our staff is give them a a safety net and allow them to uh, be adventurous and, and perform and it works um, people do do flourish um, on other areas um, I had one manager who, who had a very um, supportive uh, approach and um, promoted rewarded you uh, not just in monetary terms but in uh, compliments and that um, and I worked harder for, for that individual because I felt valued. And I, and I think the thing is that you want people to feel uh, valued. Um, and if they feel valued, then, then it, I think it's just um, a massive um, bonus for them. Uh, and we get people on board who have started with us um, who uh, are good people uh, might have been not that uh, well treated in other organisations and they flourish here because 
you know, we value their opinion uh, and we value um, them getting involved. And, you know, they will make mistakes, but that's how we actually learn and, and move forward. I think that's absolutely uh, right, um, Clive. It's um, still very much um, a learning process. It's a process of constant development. Um, I think even though we can learn certain skills, um, however, and certainly develop um, our natural traits, there are some things that some people do have to be born with in a sense, aren't there? But they mainly include things such as a certain motivation and a certain drive. And that's also quite important, isn't it? Sort of finding what makes somebody really tick in that sense. Definitely, um, and I think um, some people have, uh, are different, obviously different personalities. And you've got certain people who are, are natural, kind of have a certain amount of, of charisma, uh, and can actually captivate the room. Uh, and other people who are a little bit more um, uh, less um, kind of outward, outward, but have a lot to offer to the business, and it, it's really allowing those people to adapt to the style. One of the things when I was with, with one company, um, they used to basically put you on a three-day uh, course, which were the managers and the senior team. And I think it was best described as actually pulling you apart. It would you'd have three days of intense kind of decision-making, um, very little sleep, and constantly challenged. And the idea was with that was to actually find your weak points so that um, it identified areas where you are vulnerable um, and from that they actually said when you are actually forming a team around you your weak areas you need to get people who are strong uh, yes you know be aware of your, your weaknesses and you can try and um, develop yourself to strengthen those areas but in many ways you will default back to your type and you might find it difficult. So if you can actually recruit people who can uh, cover those weak areas, then all of a sudden the team becomes uh, very much stronger and also more integri- uh, in- integral and you depend on one another. Um, and that's one of the techniques that I, uh, I've tried to adopt uh, when I've been going through through my career. And it's, that's what I tend to say to our our. Uh, people, you know, be aware of your weaknesses, um, try and fix them. But um, if you are struggling, use somebody who's who's actually got the strength in that area. And it's that's the importance of having diverse teams and getting people uh, on board with different backgrounds um, because they are the, collectively, it, it's a much more uh, stronger offering. Mm. Again, I think that's um, absolutely right, Clive. I can certainly see where you're coming from uh, from that uh, point of view. And um, also, I think it's very sound advice to anybody looking to embark um, in a leadership role, particularly those among the younger generations as well, who perhaps are a little bit afraid of failure and maybe getting into that um, routine of embracing that as a learning opportunity. And if we continue to think about the uh, the future, Clive, before we do wrap things up on the, uh, the programme today, do give me an idea of what you envision the next 12 months holding for yourself and for OMS and also what you hope to achieve in that time, not just in getting through COVID-19, but also for beyond the pandemic as well as we emerge from this situation? Well, it's uh, it's quite funny. The, the, the kind of uh, gear is, is much different than I anticipated last December. Um, I mean, we were coming out of um, the kind of a Brexit decision-making and one of two of our clients had um, things on hold because of Brexit. 
then that was kind of sorted out in January uh, and there was a sudden shift in uh, confidence and people were a lot more buoyant uh, and some of our, I guess our bigger clients, such as Amazon, um, were starting to invest a lot more in the training uh, side. Um, so we had all that and then obviously uh, another set of challenges have arrived with, uh, with COVID. So from our perspective on the consultancy side, um, there seems to be quite a, a, a package of work that's coming out on, on COVID Secure. Uh, and one or two of the certification bodies are now starting to issue COVID Secure um, certificates. So it's an area that we see um, a number of our, our uh, clients wanting. Uh, and we'll be moving forward on that. I think the consultancy side um, will continue strength to strength uh, throughout the year uh, and will grow. The training uh, side of things, I think because of the social distancing element, um, it's really um, going to need a bit more creativity in the short term. Uh, we've managed to get uh, approval from a number of award bodies to deliver virtual training. So from our IRCA, which is the Institute of Quality uh, Assurance uh, offerings for auditing, um, we've got approval for, for delivering those, uh, those, that training uh, virtually and we'll continue uh, to do that. Also, um, CITB Science Safety Plus, we're delivering that uh, on a virtual uh, training offering. A number of others. Um, so we've, we've geared ourselves up uh, to maximise that. We're finding there's very good uh, feedback um, and we'll continue to do that offering until it becomes um, safe to offer the, the face-to-face uh, training. The thing is our training facilities can hold um, a large number of people uh, and we feel that that is not uh, safe to have all those, those people in at the moment. Um, we feel that once the um, kind of social distance inside um, is kind of relaxed and we then can start going back to uh, the old way of working, and I can see that there is still a place for the virtual training um, because it allows us, and we've used it in the past, um, as I say, with international clients, and we still use it with some of our current clients, CloudPay, uh, for doing uh, remote. They've got offices throughout the world uh, and we look after them and do training with them um, virtually and it works extremely well. Um, but I see the training side um, picking up because I think there's a, there's a lull that's happened and that uh, will mean that there's probably a backlog of training in the system. Uh, and I, provided we get the, the right bounce uh, back out of uh, COVID, uh, I think that uh, the training side will will continue to to grow um, as it has done the last last few years. I think one of the things that we find is we try and tailor the training as much as possible on the uh, in-house training to that organisation. So we've built relationships with with big companies such as Molson Coors, with Amazon, with uh, BT. Uh, and others, uh, and that's allowed us um, to differentiate ourselves because we'll sit down with them and go through exactly what outcome they want from the training side. So it's not just a matter of, okay, you know, it's a good idea, we'll do a bit of training in this area. It's really saying, okay, so you, you want training in this area, 
what he was trying to achieve. Let's actually go through that. And what we've done with the companies as well is if they're having particular challenges in areas, we'll try and build those challenges into the course so the course participants are actually working uh, problems within the organisation so that when they go back, they're actually uh, already organised and have some base understanding of of the problems and how to solve them. And with certain clients, we've come up with some really good um, outputs from those workshops. Uh, And it's trying to add value um, so that when the people go back to the business, um, we've achieved the, the objective of the training and it allows us to to, um, to those individuals to, to get back to the company and, and develop things uh, further. So, yeah, um, uh, short term, I think we've got uh, a bumpy road. And I think the challenge for people is, is when, they, as I say, the furlough ends and people coming back to work um, and the likes of the bounce back loans and the other loans are going to help uh, the companies to get through that period. Uh, but I think once we get through that, then, um, yeah, I, I see a very um, upmarket um, vision for the for the, 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 the business. It certainly seems like exciting times, um, Clive, despite um, all of the uncertainty and the bumpy road ahead in the uh, the short term as well. And even though we are just about out of time on uh, today's uh, programme, unfortunately, I think it would actually be fantastic from a listener's perspective to have you back on in a few months' time just to discuss how those initiatives are getting on, how how OMS is doing, and just discuss overall how things have panned out. I think that would be absolutely fantastic. Yeah, that would be really good. I'd love, love to do that. I think it would be fantastic um, as well, Clive. Um, as far as today goes, it's been a thoroughly enjoyable and also a really informative experience having you on the programme. And I would like to take the time to thank you again for your time and do take the utmost care and stay safe as well with everything still going on for sure. You too. And uh, thank you very much for having me on. Likewise, Clive. Take care. That was Clive Ormerod, Managing Director of OMS. I hope you all enjoyed the interview and, of course, learning more about how the whole OMS team is continuing to raise standards even throughout this challenging time. Coming up next on the programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and also the Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Now, despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett rose to prominence to become one of the most notable politicians of his generation, having held a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and serving as the MP for Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough for 28 years. Blunkett was first elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015 as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough, his old constituency. And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with Lord Blunkett. That's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected. Mm -hmm. 
in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? 
Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 
uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, uh, great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of 
experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated, mm -hmm. scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that. It was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape 
that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be to prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. 
this obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare Mm. uh, where it neither represented a a, a credible opposition nor uh, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible 
confident and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Sukir is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Sukir need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, Sakir uh, Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm-hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background. 
he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. As always, it has been a pleasure both listening to and learning from our guests. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner, and I hope you all enjoyed listening. Until next time, since sadly all of the pubs are still closed, I will be sitting in my front room and raising a glass to raising standards. Hopefully I'll be back in the usual spot in the Westminster Arms soon. Remember, look after yourselves, stay home where you can, control the virus. It really does make a difference in saving lives. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can find every episode on iTunes, YouTube and Spotify. The views expressed by each guest in the podcast are their own. They do not represent the opinions of the Parliamentary Review, Westminster Publications, Lord Pickles, Lord Blunkett, David Curry or any other guest on the podcast. If you'd like to know more about the Parliamentary Review, please visit www.theparliamentaryreview.co.uk.